You are listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. We are a group of students at the University of North Texas Health Science Center who are passionate about mental health issues and fighting stigmas. The aim of this podcast is to educate our listeners on mental health and tell our experiences with honesty. We encourage you to consider only what feels best to you and to consult with your medical professional and or support team before doing anything that might jeopardize your physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental health. Some episodes may trigger an adverse reaction. If an episode is beginning to upset you, I advise that you please pause immediately and talk to your support team. With that being said, welcome to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Let's dive in. This is the trigger warning for this week's episode of the Mind Podcast. The content and discussion of this week's episode involves sexual assault, rape, and sexual violence. If right now or at any time during the episode you feel triggered by the discussion, please feel free to momentarily leave the space at any time. For UNT HSC students, the care team info contact information, the care team with the Office of Care and Civility on UNT HSC website, on-call care team phone line 817-735-2740. Also, immediate and ongoing support is available through My Student Support Program. Tarrant County Community Resources, JPS Forensic Nurse SANE Program, 817-702-7263. The Women's Center of Tarrant County Rape Crisis Service 24-Hour Hotline, 817-927-2737. The Safe Haven of Tarrant County, 877-701-7233. Additionally, there are some national resources for if you or someone you know have been affected by sexual violence. One of these resources is RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It's the largest national anti-sexual violence organization. It's created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Centers.rain.org is a website that allows you to input your state or zip code and gives you addresses and telephone numbers for local sexual assault service providers. The National Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. Thank you. Welcome to part two of the Mind Mental Health Podcast's episode covering sexual assault and domestic violence. In part one, we discussed a brief overview of what sexual assault and domestic violence actually is and the various actions that fall under their umbrella. One of our hosts, Christian, an incoming second-year medical student at UNTHSC, shared her own experience with sexual assault and her subsequent thoughts on the stigma surrounding these topics. The latter half of the episode featured an interview with Connie Housley, an ER nurse and sexual assault nurse examiner, or SANE nurse, working at JPS. In today's episode, we further discuss the topics at hand, and we also interview Atusa Abadi, a social worker specializing in sexual assault and domestic violence among South Asian women in the Houston area. We have with us today Atusa Abadi. She is a licensed master social worker currently living and working in Houston. Hi. 
Hi. Why don't you go ahead and tell us where you work, how long you've been working for, and what field of social work that you specialize in? Sure. Um, so my name is Atisa Abadi. I am a master's social worker. I'm hopefully getting my clinical degree soon if COVID ends. I'm currently working at DIA, which is a nonprofit in Houston, and we provide non-residential services to primarily South Asian survivors of domestic violence, family violence, and sexual assault. Although we're culturally specific, we do work with other populations since there's a lack of resources out there for them. So primarily it'd be like African and especially the Middle Eastern countries. There's not really a culturally specific service out there for them. So I do counseling and case management for our clients. It's been about three years. We're non-residential, so no shelter. The most common services, I would say, are legal advocacy, housing, employment, counseling. Those would probably be the biggest ones. Okay. So yeah, my expertise is in pretty much violence in general. Mm-hmm. Both like, sexual and domestic. Yes. And I do have a few human trafficking clients as well. So have a little okay. experience with that too. You were talking about getting your clinical degree after COVID ends. How has the current pandemic affected your work? So, yeah, I was supposed to take my license exam. I think the first week of the stay-at-home orders went into place. That has been a struggle. Most of our services were provided in person pre-COVID. So, obviously, that's not an option. Um, And we've been really cautious. So, even with other agencies opening back up, we're going very slowly with it. So right now, all our services are being provided remotely. And thankfully, we transitioned into that pretty well. So we usually do like phone uh, or texting or video conference and email, of course. So it hasn't been too bad. Well, I'm glad that it was as smooth of a transition as possible for y'all. Yeah, for sure. So the current episode that we're recording today has to do with sexual violence and domestic violence. We wanted to speak with you because of your expertise. So uh, saying that, with regards to the subject matter at hand, um, between social workers and healthcare practitioners, where do you think the biggest gaps are in their respective approaches to care? So biggest gaps, I at least from my experience and just uh, we do a lot of collaborative work with other agencies in the Houston area. So we work pretty closely with the district attorney's office and their prosecutors, sane nurses, different domestic violence agencies, law enforcement. And it seems like the biggest gaps for these past three years that I've been hearing is like the lack of collaborative efforts between the social workers and the other medical staff in the ER and just like the lack of education in what providing trauma-informed care would look like. Um, Is this taking place in every kind of department or is this mostly in the the emergency department or internal medicine? From what I know, it's it's mainly happening in ERs and then also like OBGYN clinics. Those have been the two biggest ones. Mm -hmm. That actually makes sense. So what steps would you like both these fields to take so that a more integrated standard of care is achieved? 
within the medical social workers realm, I think it's really important to be mindful of the amount of knowledge and training medical staff have on what trauma is, what does it look like, uh, and addressing any misconceptions and maybe biases as well, and trying to push for trainings to take place in these settings. And hopefully with those trainings, then there can be more work in implementing more medical protocol. And I think Mm -hmm. from the practitioner's point of view, and I know this doesn't happen in every setting, but it is pretty common for social workers to feel like they aren't as valued. They, the doctors will dismiss them at times. And just like, because of current protocol that's in place at most settings, oftentimes there's there's always going to be someone slipping through the cracks and that they didn't meet like the mandated protocol to do a social work consult. And so there's definitely a lot of difficulty navigating when to have a consult or like just when to even have social workers get involved in a patient's situation, especially if it's like an ER, then you're trying to get people out and you have a, you're have you running 100 miles an hour. So <clears throat> that's a big issue as well. And just like we know surface level, we all know what trauma looks like, but there's so many non-traditional ways that we don't discuss and there's so still so many misconceptions and biases on how a patient should be acting. So I think there needs to be a lot more discussion about those things. I completely agree with that. And you were actually talking earlier about pushing for more training and protocols so that healthcare professionals can be more cognizant of how to recognize what sexual assault victims look like and how to address them and how to how to treat them. And you also mentioned earlier that you have mm-hmm. uh, several clients who are human trafficking victims. So in our research, we found that there are several research studies going on in the United States that are experimenting on screening tools in the emergency department for victims of human trafficking. Uh, my question is, are there similar screening tools that healthcare practitioners can use with regards to sexual assault and domestic violence? Yes. So there's a lot out there within the domestic violence field. There's a, a there's been an increase in hospitals actually provide using this tool, but it's called the dan- the danger assessment, and it's 19 yes or no questions that will create a score indicating what level of risk the victim is experiencing in possibly being killed by their intimate partner. And so there's the top factors such as if there's a gun in the home, has there been strangulation? Do you have a child that is not his? And so I know that a lot more medical settings are actually using this tool to gauge what the lethality is. And then once they grasp that, then they can provide the appropriate services. Different states have been doing different types of initiatives. Texas, I know in Harris County, we have a team between the district attorney's office, Houston Police Department, the domestic violence agencies, uh, and then medical staff, obviously. And they have regular meetings to discuss. Like, I think they've done a pilot study that's been completed by now of just implementing different protocols for especially strangulation. And I know Travis County is doing the same. I haven't heard anything about Dallas, but 
it's becoming more common around the country. Uh, so there's a lot of tools out there for sexual assault, for domestic violence, strangulation, but it's not being implemented as as much as it should be. Okay, so I guess from how I'm understanding it, a lot of these protocols and policies are already in place. And I guess it's just a matter of how much these healthcare professionals, after receiving that training, probably in the beginning of their employment, how much of this training that they are actually retaining. Well, I think so most places aren't, training and implementing it in the first place but i'm sure i'm sure there's there's always room for improvement so i'm sure these agencies that have implemented it there could be some changes done where maybe the training is done more often or more in depth but just tailoring it to who the employee is so i'm sure what you said about not retaining the information maybe not practicing it enough to actually learn and experiencing it i'm sure those play a part in this as well yeah and i'm sure that many healthcare professionals would be surprised at how many of the patients that they encounter are actually sexual or domestic violence victims but they just weren't aware because Mm -hmm. they didn't receive the training to recognize the signs During our research, we were surprised to find that approximately 50% of female medical students had reported being harassed. So my question now is, what would you say are the main warning signs that we should be looking out for so that we can be more cognizant of potential cases of sexual violence? Biggest warning signs. There's a lot. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's a big question to ask. Where do I start (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so so I think it's important for me to, I know you're asking primarily about um, sexual violence, but sexual mm-hmm. violence can be under the umbrella of domestic violence, interpersonal violence. And I also, mm-hmm. I'm continuing to emphasize strangulation just because of how fatal it is. And there is actual protocol out there um, that agencies are using now to recognize and respond more efficiently. So I'm going to give the warning signs for all of those things. There's a lot of similarities between all these forms of violence and human trafficking because of the, the perpetrator will continue to maintain control through tactics that we call like power and control wheel it's a pretty common diagram within the, the domestic violence assault world that it includes different characteristics or different common tactics where the perpetrator is able to enforce and maintain control over the other person. And so some of those common things that you see within human trafficking and the signs to look out for is the intimidation that causes the person who's experienced the violence to be very intimidated um, in sharing anything. They may be afraid of possible threats being followed through by from the perpetrator. There's a lot of coercion, a lot of minimizing, 
And I think it's there's so many silent victims out there that don't ever make it to a setting where they can get any sort of treatment because of emotional abuse, financial abuse, medical neglect, immigration abuse. I think there's there's so many factors that has to be recognized in understanding how many people are out there experiencing injustice that don't even receive any sort of treatment. I know the past over the past few years, there's been an increase fear in the immigrant population with ICE and going and seeking medical treatments, especially with my clients. There's a it's very common for my immigrant clients to not understand what their rights are in the country. And so they truly believe that if they were to make a police report about the sexual assault or the domestic violence that, and they're an immigrant, that police can decide to detain them and deport them immediately. And it's very barrier to care. Yeah. So it's already, it's so important to, to be very mindful of all of this because it takes a lot of courage for them to be able to seek treatment. And oftentimes it's kind of like their last straw. And so this is, this may be their Mm -hmm. first time actually reaching out for help and for any first responder, for medical practitioners, social workers in these settings, pretty much anyone working with clients who've experienced trauma, it is, so important for them to be mindful of how they're responding because this may be the first time that a survivor is reaching out for help. And so if it's a poor experience, then they may never feel like they can reach out for help again. It's kind of like this domino Mm -hmm. effect. So I think, so there's a, a lot of warning signs to look out for. Oftentimes they're, I'm going to say women, but I want to recognize that it's victims of family violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, strangulation. It is across all genders, um, all sexual orientations, all income, all of everything. But just to, just to mm-hmm. put it in simple terms, I'll just use women since they are, they do experience much higher rates than other population. Oftentimes they are very afraid of seeking medical treatment because of their lack of understanding on HIPAA and confidentiality mandated CPS reports or police reports. And so they may refuse to provide identification. They may give fake information just because of this very realistic fear that they have of the perpetrator possibly obtaining medical records or locate them and come and intimidate them or harass them, assault them again. And so that's a common warning sign to look out for. Also inconsistencies with the stories and the injuries. And our brains have a tendency to uh, shut off traumatic experiences um, if it's too much to do with at that time. Exactly. And so when you seek medical treatment in the yard, that a traumatic event has just occurred. So they're not going to have a complete memory of the incident. Um, and that may also be because of brain injury from strangulation or the physical violence they experienced. And so the, it is very, very common for patients to be very inconsistent with their stories. They may have new memories surfacing throughout their visit. And so 
that can be perceived as, oh, they're intentionally hiding, withholding some information, and they're just going to share some more information as they feel safe, where that may not be the reality of it. Because of this intimidation, the coercion, and the threats they experience from the perpetrator, they may, oftentimes, they will recant their story and refuse to be cooperative to staff. They may be very agitated as well. I think we as professionals, we need to examine our own biases, our institutional procedures, and ask yourself, why do we confuse trauma for drama, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's actually a great point. And so there's a lot of warning signs that can be in misinterpreted as quote-unquote drama that victims of all different types of crime experience. I think that like a lot of the things we just said, we just talked about, would fall under this dra- dramatic client or patient. Sorry, I always mm-hmm. mix those up. Yeah, they, they might get trivialized because of that perception. Mm-hmm. Originalized as a less important patient. Yeah, part of this... So there's this power control wheel that we use a lot in educating survivors, the community, everyone. Um, And there's also a term called the cycle of violence, which is this cycle, this pattern of the honeymoon phase, then there's some tension, and then there's the explosion, which is the, the big assault. And so in an abusive relationship, that cycle is repeated over and over again, Throughout the relationship, there's there's this common question of like, well, why doesn't she just leave? It's never as easy as that. And the cycle of violence plays a big role in that because after this explosive event, he will become very apologetic, mm-hmm. become very charming, very caring. Um, everything goes beautiful. Their relationship is beautiful for days, months, whatever. And then oftentimes as well, within that sense of power and control, there's a term called contextual violence. And that's when an abuser will provoke the other person to cause the survivor to hit the perpetrator. And then the perpetrator will will manipulate that to make the, the survivor believe that they're actually the abusive one. And so there's a lot of victim blaming, a lot of minimizing the abuse they've experienced that can be a a common sign to watch out for when you're speaking to a patient. So I guess it's pretty clear that with sexual and domestic violence, there can also come with it um, emotional and mental abuse. So with all of those factors compounding on a person's psyche, Are there physical manifestations of that, um, such as behavioral changes or? Yeah, so some of those behavioral changes would be like high anxiety, difficulty maintaining eye contact, very closed off postures. There may be rapid speech or flight of, just like a flight of thoughts, or they may be very quiet, refuse to talk, refuse to cooperate. And I think this goes back to what I said earlier about like what the traditional trauma patient looks like. That's not always the case that this person 
is going to be immediately open up and discuss all the details like you see on SVU or that they're crying hysterically. They're Mm -hmm. very active. Different people have different responses. And so it can also look like having a very flat affect. Would you mind restating, you you were talking about why you were mentioning strangulation so often. Would you mind restating that? So the, the reason I keep bringing strangulation into our discussion is that strangulation is the number one sign that the abuse has increased so much that there is a very good likelihood of homicide. And so I believe just one incident of strangulation increases the person's risk of being killed by seven seven to nine times. And so strangulation isn't a common thing we discuss in the professional field, but it needs to be because of how dangerous it is, how common it occurs and is not addressed. Wow. Okay. So for how telling strangulation can be regarding the escalation of a domestic violence or sexual violence case, what should we be focusing on in terms of internal or external signs? So for strangulation, I think there's also this misconception of what the patient looks like when there's been strangulation, similar to what someone who's experienced sexual violence. There's this common misconception that they would be very talkative, very angry. Although a lot, most of the signs are internal, there are still a lot of external signs to look out for with your patient who, if you're suspecting some strangulation has occurred. And I do want to make note that there's a difference between strangulation, choking, and suffocation. Oh. Um, yeah, and so, so that's like a really common, this is a really common example of what that training includes. So when you are documenting, it is so important to use the correct terminology because if this does go to court or police reading the medical notes, So strangulation is when there's external pressure on the throat to restrict breathing. Suffocation is going to be like using a a pillow or some type of object to stop the breathing. And then choking is something's like lodged in your throat. It's important to note like, so that's why I keep using the word strangulation. Mm -hmm. And then within strangulation itself, there's three different forms of strangulation. And so there's hanging, which is like suspension from a cord or the ligature uh, strangulation, which would be strangulation without suspension. So using some form of cord, but not hanging and just restricting with the cord or belt or whatever. And then there's manual strangulation. And that's, that's typically like using your own hands Mm -hmm. instead of a different object. And so Manual strangulation is the most common type of strangulation that is experienced for within domestic violence or sexual assault. So each different types of forms of strangulation is going to have different signs to watch out for. Some common signs would be voice changes, swallowing changes, changes with their breathing, maybe even miscarriages or change in mental status nausea, dizziness, 
redness or swelling, abrasions, bruises on their neck. There may be some fractured bones in the neck, vision or hearing loss, memory loss, um, even lung damage or fluid in the lungs. So there's, even though the, the injury externally is on the neck, it has this this widespread impact on the whole body as a whole. And so that's, there's a lot of, there's a lack of knowledge in that. And so looking out for those is very important. Side note, unfortunately, there are children who also have been strangled. And so that's also especially hard to identify within the children population because they may casually describe it where you wouldn't see those red flags and maybe say like, oh, it was just a game. He was holding me and my legs were swinging around. So that's the language used is especially important in being age appropriate. So let's say that we do recognize these warning signs in a person that we just met or even a person that we know personally but they're a person who hasn't actually sought out help for having an experience of sexual violence or domestic violence. Is there a specific approach or method that we should use to to talk to them about it, or should we even approach them at all? You should definitely approach. I like to, like, I tell people it's the negative effects of Asking and it not being true is less fatal than to just not ask at all. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you have a gut feeling that there may be some sort of violence going on um, or a recent assault. For you to ask, and let's say there isn't, then they get upset. Mm-hmm. They may yell at you, but it it's, doesn't really surpass that majority of people who experience some sort of violence, they will not report it. And so they may be very hesitant in even bringing it up in the first place. It is so important to ask. And even if you're worried about the language you use or how you format your question or comments, I think that just takes practice, but it's that hesitation, that fear shouldn't hold you back. And you really do need to address this with patients. If you have this gut feeling, we do a disservice to our community um, by not understanding how trauma impacts the person. Um, So one thing to do that I've kept repeating is to have these trainings to better understand what trauma looks like um, in the aftermath, how does it impact the person during and after the traumatic event, Um, what are common characteristics, because oftentimes these survivors will underestimate the impact of the event or underestimate the danger that they're in. So it's really important to, when you do address it as well, don't use terminology they may not understand. Be very direct about it, which I know is very uncomfortable for people, but it's similar idea to people who are suicidal. In the medical field, you're taught to directly ask, are you experiencing suicidal thoughts? 
yes, it's very uncomfortable, but you don't want to play around. The patient may misunderstand your question if you're not going to ask it directly. Like it might, it might detract from the gravity of the situation that you're trying to like, that you're trying to address. Correct. Yeah. So, so yeah, so be very direct about it in simple terms. If you're that scared of using the right words or asking the right questions, then you can simply just say, share your concerns for their safety. So even if you don't know what's going on, know what caused them to come to the hospital, if they're being very resistant sharing, you can just be honest and tell them, hey, I know you said that this is going, that this is what caused you to come, but I really am concerned that there may be some other things that have that you've experienced that may be helpful for me to know and so just I think it's very it is especially in this era where there we are breaking the stigma there is this me too movement there there is so much advocacy in disclosing the abuse you've experienced it's still very, very common for them to, for people to not dis, not share their, the abuse they experience to other people, especially to people of authority, such as doctors or police officers. And then there's this misconception that, oh, they disclose because they are just doing it as a form of retaliation or they're lying, they just want money. But Oftentimes, the statistically, each year, the number of false allegations of sexual assault or domestic violence is close to like 2%. I think more people, statistically, more there are more false allegations of uh, robbery than there is of sexual violence. But to the common people, they think it's actually the opposite, that there's much higher rates of false allegation of sexual violence. And so um, there are so many factors that play into the patient's mind of whether, what to share, how to share it, where do they draw the line of the details of what details they share. Being very aware of, cognizant of that and expressing concern. I think there's this very difficult, delicate balance of pushing them some more for more information um, in a healthy way and when it can be pushing too hard in a very unhealthy way. Most people have very strong feelings about sexual violence and so we have to remember to keep our biases and our opinions to ourselves and value that person's self-determination. Yeah, and, th- and that's actually a, a great jumping off point because I was about to ask if there are specific no-nos in terms of how we approach potential victim of sexual violence, approaches that you know most people probably don't even know are detrimental in getting them the help that they need. So yeah, the looking at how 
statistically low false allegations are, one of those big no-nos is to kind of question the person's story. And sometimes it's very, we have good intention of the question we're asking, but the way it's perceived can be really, really the opposite of our intentions. And so one example in the social work field, one of, I'm not too sure how common it is in outside of the social work field, but we're taught don't use the word why in any sort of question because asking why XYZ puts this automatic sense of blame or wrongdoing that that patients or clients may easily pick up mm -hmm. on. And so we may have only the best intentions of asking, well, why did you decide to not go home with your friends and walk instead? Yes, we were really asking that is the intention behind that may be very helpful because then you could do some safety planning of like, all right, next time, if you do really want to walk alone, just make sure you have shared your location with someone or whatever. But that's one example of like, don't ask, don't use, don't ask why questions. Don't ever express some sort of hesitancy on whether or not you believe the patient the documentation needs to be done really well because those small details could be having a much larger impact on any sort of prosecution or like a protective order criminal charges um, because so strangulation is a felony charge and so the more evidence the better obviously for any case so making sure you ask the right questions and document everything take pictures. Oftentimes with our clients, many of them are limited English speakers, but I think also just like the, the general person, they're not gonna, they're not gonna know that there's a difference between strangulation, choking, whatever. And so we're at work, we're really mindful of addressing the topic of sexual violence or strangulation because we recognize if we say string did he strangle you they may misunderstand what we're asking they might not even understand our question um, so just being very trauma-informed in saying has he ever tried to touch you or tried to have sex with you and you didn't want to instead of just saying did, have you experienced sexual violence or has he ever assaulted you? Instead of saying strangling, we'll say, has he ever put his hands around your neck? And if they say yes, then we can ask some more follow-up questions. So again, that's, that's why it's also so important to ask the questions, ask the questions in a trauma-informed way, and then probe in a way where you're still respecting their boundaries. And this is something that takes a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. And so you may find that you, the first try, time you try to have this discussion with someone, it completely backfires. And I don't know, you just don't get the answers you were looking for. Then just don't let that 
cause you to be even more hesitant addressing it with the next patient. Like these are just things that we have to kind of rewire our thought process and the words we use. And it takes a lot of practice. I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't know that there was um, a specific way that you should be direct. Like the, the yes, you should have direct questioning when you're approaching patients, but there is a way to still be sensitive about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing to be very mindful of is that these people who have experienced the violence, they are the expert in the situation. And so we may think that plan A is the most effective way in stopping the violence. And it's as simple as call the police, X, Y, Z, whatever. If it was easy as plan A, it would have happened already. So there is an obvious, there's there so many reasons for why plan A wasn't effective. And I think when people believe that their plan A or whatever advice they give is as simple as that, it kind of, you put this idea that the patient is is dumb or isn't taking it seriously enough where in fact oftentimes that patient is actually being very strategic very smart about what boundaries to cross with that perpetrator and how to react in violent situations so you may have patients that they didn't hit back um, when he started hitting her because she knows that'll just escalate that'll make him angrier and his abuse will escalate it may lead to for example strangulation or a head concussion so that's something very very i think that's part of the trauma-informed approach hospitals have to start implementing is that's one of those things that needs to be addressed more directly Mm -hmm. that's actually a great point and i think that's that's something that that needs to happen when it comes to, um, to these protocols is uh, mm-hmm. not yeah, and, just one And for, for the patients that are, their demeanor is different than what we traditionally expect, we need to, mm-hmm. to check ourselves if we start leaning towards this question of, well, if she doesn't care, then why should I care? Or in reality, she does care, but... Mm-hmm part of the trauma reaction is this perception, is this mood and behavior of non-compliance or just being very flat. I I know that like most of what we talk about is sexual violence in general and sexual assault in general and not really pertaining to to the area that you actually do with the, the South Asian population. But since this is a more general area of, of sexual violence or the, the more general topic that we're addressing, thanks for thanks for addressing it and thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, of course. So I I know I talked about a really a lot of dark things that can make people feel hopeless, but we have a lot of power in changing these systems and these responses. And so I I encourage for even for medical students, for professionals, for whatever, just a typical community member, like pushing, advocating for updates with medical protocol uh, to provide these full forensic assessments or 
having social workers in ERs 24-7 rather than just 9 to 5 or 8 to 5 yeah. encourage the encourage practicing follow-up care with people who've been flagged for possible domestic violence, sexual assault, train, advocate for training on how to document correctly in these situations, train the first responders, train ER staff, Mm -hmm. train other providers like the OBGYN since they are working with populations that have high possibility of experiencing domestic violence or so continue to advocate uh, even within your own medical setting look into what resources are available and so for for someone who's experienced a crime there's crime victim compensation look into how do you even apply for it um, is that something you can help explain to a patient see what what Medicaid covers. So if a person has experienced violence and is seeking treatment and is worried about not being able to financially afford whatever treatment is needed, you already have this understanding of what what options are out there for treatment that falls within Medicaid's coverage. I believe all the marketplace plans and a lot of other private insurance plans, they do cover domestic violence screening and counseling um, without having to charge the person for a copay, even if a deductible isn't met. So do the research to see what resources are available. Um, Have these numbers written somewhere so that if you do have questions, which experts can you call to ask? Well, thank you again for agreeing to speak with us. Of course, more than happy to. It's been a genuine pleasure. Yeah. Uh, again, that has been a two-cell body. Is there anything, any final words that you'd like to say regarding your work or uh, the, regarding the topic? I am obviously more than happy to, to discuss all of these things and answer any questions that anyone may have, or if you or someone you know is experiencing some form of violence, then please reach out to me or our agency. Again, it's DAYA, D-A-Y-A in Houston. We have a hotline. There's also the National Domestic Violence Hotline that is 24-7 as well. So please don't hesitate to reach out if, if you need a ask any questions or talk about something. Thank you for listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode notes for some resources we recommend. If you are out there and you're feeling stuck or feeling alone, you are not alone in this. Seeking help for your mental health is an important way of taking control of your life. And remember, it's okay not to be okay. Before we go, show some love by sharing this podcast with a friend and rating on whatever platform you may be using. We look forward to sharing new content with you every second and fourth Wednesday of the month. Thanks again for listening.